Welcome to Remember That Movie, a podcast about our relationship with the movies from our past, hosted by me, the third Alejandro Rosa on IMDb. Today, we will look back at the 2000 Academy Award-winning film, Almost Famous, and we will do it through the eyes of my guest, Raven Adams. And we will try to answer the question, does this movie, made over 20 years ago, stand the test of time? Welcome to Remember That Movie. Sit back, it's time to get groovy. Question, do you remember that movie? Raven, welcome back to the podcast. And just to start us out, tell us, why this movie? When did you watch this movie? How old were you? Give us the background. So I believe I saw this movie in theaters all the way back 22 years ago. Uh, let's. You said September yeah, of September 2000? 22nd of 2000 is when Almost Famous was released in theaters. Okay, so I would have been 14, turning 15 that year, in my freshman year of high school. At that time in my life, I was getting super into kind of different different genres of music. I feel like the early 2000s, especially like, you know, my generation, it was all pop music. So it was all in sync and Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears. And I was really obsessed with VH1's Behind the Music series, rock and roll and just, you know, blues and, and, and all this stuff. At the same time, I was getting super into different genres of film and screenwriters and, and directors. And, you know, I knew of Cameron Crowe because he actually wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And so I just, I remember, you know, this movie came out and it, and it was about, you know, this, this kind of up and coming 70s rock and roll band. And it, I just remember it featured so many different artists that I had just really been getting into and, you know, talking to a lot of like, like family members about like my uncles and my, you know, my mom and like just during that time. So I just remember I, I, it blew me away. I really, really loved it. I loved the story. I loved what it was about. I loved that it it was sort of like a almost like a love letter in a sense of being what it's like to be a fan of music. What it's a, like to be a fan of of anything, really. I feel like you were the perfect age for this movie because I mean, our lead character for those of you who it's twenty three. Okay, it's twenty two years old. All right. For those of you who missed, yeah. Spoiler, spoiler alert. We're going to have a lot of spoilers. <laughs> so if you haven't watched Almost Famous, maybe go watch it and then listen to us because we're going to just kind of give away the whole plot. Young man, getting into, you know, sort of stumbling into the music industry and suddenly finding himself with a rock band and essentially on tour and all of that. Pretty much most teenagers' dreams to a certain extent, like to be suddenly like just thrown oh, into yeah. the deep end of the music industry and just being a part of it. One thing that I will point out is I also haven't watched this film in many, many, many years, but it has probably been, I'd say at least a good 15 years since I saw it. So. Yeah, same. It was at least 10, 10 yeah. or more. I, would I, say. I didn't think I saw it in theater. I think I saw it on like DVD or Blu-ray. 
It was probably VHS. Fine. It probably was VHS, Raven. I own it on VHS. I know for a fact that Raven owns a lot of things on VHS. She's cool that way. She owns all the technologies. If she could, she'd probably have Laserdisc, too. Who says I doesn't? So, this movie's full of incredible actors. Francis McDormand. Yes. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Kate Hudson. Billy Crudup. Jason Lee. Anna Paquin. Eric Stone Street is even in this one. Before he was Eric Stone yes. Street. Rain Wilson is in this one before he's Rain Wilson. We have a young gentleman uh, played by Patrick. Is it Fugit? Fugit? I think it was Fugit. 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 Honestly, mm. I think the whole film is very charming. I've read yeah. that Russell Crowe worked on the script for about 10 years. You mean Cameron Crowe? Cameron. <laughs> Russell Crowe was was filming was filming Gladiator, <laughs> yeah. I think, at the he same time. He was doing time. the press tour for Gladiator <laughs> while oh, he was writing okay. this. Yeah. Um, Cameron freaking Crowe worked on the film or on the script for the film for about 10 years. It feels very personal. It feels very adored that there's the way that the subject matter is handled. I don't know. There's just something really special about it. I think it's a really good script. And I will say that I don't think I actually thought that the first time I watched this. I think I liked it, but I wasn't like, oh, this is very moving and very personal and a love letter to music. Like, I didn't see that. I don't remember not liking it, but I don't remember loving it. And I have to say that I just appreciated it so much more. I think one thing... I thought this time was how well this movie that's 22 years old like stands up but I wonder if that's just because it's about a time period right like it's so it's a, based in the 70s primarily 1973 70 into 74 which is a time period I didn't live in but you know this especially like 70s rock and roll was kind of you know controversial at a time like there was a lot of people that didn't like the direction rock and roll was going at the time right like just trying to be cool versus like what real music actually was trying to say well i think even uh philip seymour hoffman's character yes when william says hey i want to write about rock and roll and he's like you're too late it's over it's over like it's, it's done yeah you know like all the great things have already happened and I love, yeah, I love that scene. He's in the uh, the DJ's office, like doing a radio interview and he's looking through all the albums and he's just like calling out, you know, bands. And, you know, he talks about, he like, I think he says like the doors, he like shits on the doors and he's like, what a bunch of drunken buffoons. <laughs> and then he was like, the who at least you know they try they're they're drunken buffoons but at least they they they're not trying to pretend they're not or something like that and i know that the cast had to go to rock and roll school with peter frampton he wrote the music he wrote him and i think it was nancy wilson of heart who is was or is married to cameron crow i think she is married because she makes a cameo in fast mm. times at ridgemont high as well, because they were married at the time. Anyway, so, and they might still be married. I don't know, but... Um, Unless they were unhappy. And if not, that's okay. Yeah, let's hope. You know. You know, and yeah, you know, we're only human. But um, but yeah, like, so Nancy Wilson 
And then I think the guitar, I think it was it the guitarist of Pearl Jam. I think so, wow, we should have done research. Actually, I did do research and I think I have it on another page that's not in front of me. Because <laughs> it was nominated for best picture. It oh. might've even won folks. It might've even won. I don't know if it did. Cause 2000, I forget what else was, what was, I, I don't know what else was Wasn't going on in 2000. I think Gladiator that may have won Best Picture. You know, it's funny, of course, that I have a whole episode on it. So I probably actually have already said this. And you don't remember. And you call you call yourself a I know. fan. I mean, I was already priding him for his work in his script writing. Raven, you are correct. It was actually nominated for Best Original Screenplay and it oh. won. Cameron Crowe won an Oscar for it. It was also nominated for Best Film Editing, and both actresses were nominated for Best Supporting, Frances McDormand and Kate Hudson. That's right. I remember her being nominated and it kind of being a big deal because this was kind of like her breakout role. Like, oh, this is, you know, Goldie Hawn's daughter. Not only was it this super popular film, so she got that exposure that way, but then she gets an Oscar nomination at... What is she, 20 at the right. at the Academy Awards at that point? Even though Anna Paquin could be like, ugh, I got my Oscar years before that. <laughs> now I'm just doing these silly films because, you know, they land on my desk. I, one thing I had written down when watching it was I just wrote the acting. So you have like a lot of like these seasoned actors with a lot of these new actors, right? Like so, Phil, I mean, Philip Seymour, I mean, this was Patrick Fugit, Fugit? We really should. We'll never know. Sorry, Patrick. I apologize, Patrick, about you this. You were really good. You were really, you were really good. Yeah, we you all were really agree. Great. You were fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. But, you know, like this is like his kind of first film. I don't know if it was Kate Hudson's first, but I know it was like her breakout role. But I thought the casting was actually quite brilliant in that regard. I just, I would have felt so freaking intimidated on that set, I think. The scene where I, I think I wrote the acting down was sort of like when William is, it's, he gets backstage with Stillwater and he's talking with Penny Lane and up walks Russell, the guitar player, Billy Crudup, Crudup, and William is innocently like introducing the two of them. And they clearly know each other. And there's that, like, so she's, they're making like they don't know each other, right? And so you can just see, like, her, how she conveyed this ray of emotion, I just thought was so beautiful. How she did that, like, so subtle, like, as tears kind of come to her eyes. Because, you know, she obviously, like, I would say loves this man, you know, but it's sort of complicated knowing like what she is and who he is and all this stuff. But I just, yeah, I just thought it, that was really, 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 really good. Do you feel like we never actually learn everything about Penny Lane? Because I feel like of all the characters, she kind of still ends up a mystery, even in the end, like we only get a little bit of who she is and what she's going through. Right, like whatever her story is. I totally forgot about her with the Quaaludes. Me too. Her getting her stomach pumped and, you know, she ended up finally reveals her real name to William. And, you know, at the end when Russell and William, you know, she kind of gets those two together. You know, he kind of says, like, I never even knew her real name. 
And I, I agree. Like, you don't know much about her. She's living in a house. But whose house was that? Like, she mentions her mom at one point. You don't know if mom's alive or not. And yeah, I agree. Like, she kind of stays a mystery. And I wonder if that was intentional. I think she enters the film as a mystery. And he made the choice to keep her that way. Not tell us all yeah. her story. Leave us wanting to know more about her. I have to have at least one fun factoid about a film. Who was cast in this film before Billy Crudup? Brad Pitt. Correct. Yay! Yay! yay. I will insert yeah! applause at this moment. <laughs> Brad Pitt was cast in this film and started working on this film. Gosh, I'm always fascinated by that. What Cameron Crowe said, I didn't ask Russell Crowe, but what Cameron Crowe said was, we started it and then we both had a conversation where we agreed it just wasn't the right fit. Yeah. I feel like there's more to that story, right? Probably. You start working on a film and then you're like, mm, this isn't really your cup of tea, is it? Now, I actually can see Brad Pitt doing a really good job in this role. Really? I can. Did he do as well, I mean, as good of a job, or could he have done as good of a job as Billy Crudup? No. I actually think Billy was exceptional. Yeah. I've recently been watching The Morning Show, and he is in it. And it's funny because I started watching that show after watching this movie. And so, you know, 22 years later, I'm watching Billy Crudup again. It really dawned on me just how good an actor he is you know i've seen him in yeah. other things and but he's never to me like somebody who's this sung acting you know god he's a golden god <laughs> which is a brad pitt line that line was written for blonde brad pitt i am a golden oh. god and they decided just to keep it i love that they kept it then for those of you who don't remember this is the moment where russell is having one of his many um, existential... Acid trips. Well, before that. Yeah. First, he's having kind of oh. like an existential crisis. And they're, you know, they're touring. And he runs into what appear to be teenagers. And they're like, hey, man, we're having a party. And he's a rock star. Wanna come? Yeah, want to come? Yeah. And this random rock star is like, cool. And goes, trips on acid, is standing on top of the pool house, starts screaming that he's a golden god and jumps into the pool. When he's talking to the kid, his name's Aaron. He's like, you're real, Aaron. This is real. Like he's having this like heart to heart conversation with this like 15, you know, other 15 year old kid. And all these other kids are just like intently listening, to, listening to him. And then he just, the, the kid goes, do you want to watch me feed a mouse to my snake? And <laughs> Russell's like, yes, I do. <laughs> like, I had a weird thought during that particular scene when he's like sitting, oh. sitting surrounded by teenagers, you know, and he's talking mm -hmm. to them about, you know, whatever, but what is right. real, what is not real. And they're listening right. intently, right? Like anybody sitting in front of the rock star. And I had the weirdest thought. I looked around or I was looking not around because I wasn't in the room. So I really just had a two dimensional, right? <laughs> Um, but yeah, I looked at them on my computer <laughs> and I thought to myself, 
those kids in 1973, those kids are, you know, grownups, parents, grandparents now. And I don't know where I was going with that, except for that, that passage of time that yeah. in that moment we see children who are no longer children. And I don't know that just, I got into my own, I, you know, I had my own Russell dilemma just thinking about that. <laughs> You know? I thought to myself that would never happen today <laughs> because of smartphones. There'd be there'd be video. There'd be video of that. Like, you know, oh, this, you know, famous musician, you know, oh yeah, like Dave Grohl came and partied with us. Yes. People wouldn't believe you, mm -hmm. right? Cuz if you don't have video or video or, you know, video or photos, it didn't happen, but now I don't think any like celebrity, musician, artist, whatever, would ever do that because it would be blasted all over Twitter the next day. Yeah. Well, even I think that makes me think of uh, Bill Murray, who is, yes. who is well yes. known for making like cameo appearances in people's weddings or, you know, whatever. He just shows up. Eating their sandwiches. Yeah. I thought it was fries whatever it, it was something <laughs> it doesn't matter he ate, something. he ate something it doesn't matter okay so for anybody who doesn't know the story there's this story that goes around saying that somebody was like having lunch and out of nowhere bill mary comes over walks over to his table and like takes a little bit of his food i i read it was uh fries uh, raven has read it was a sandwich um yeah and <laughs> takes it like stands there eats whatever, and then looks at him and says, no one would ever believe you, and then leaves. Brilliant, yeah. Which is fantastic. Which, by the way, full circle, reminds me of a Brad Pitt story. When Brad Pitt was, he did Legends of the Fall, an interview with a vampire, and mm -hmm. both of those films came out almost back to back. There was a magazine called Premier Magazine. It was a movie magazine. It was like Entertainment Weekly, but even fancier. Mm -hmm. And because I was a movie nerd, not anymore, of course, since now I have a podcast about it. Um, <laughs> but when I was a movie nerd, I had a subscription and I read this article about this man who I'd never heard of. And the whole point of the article was that this was the last time he probably wasn't going to be a movie star. And he was living in like a crappy apartment with a beat up car and he had like no furniture and he had chameleons for some reason. But what I remember was he talked about poverty and being really poor in Los Angeles and doing random stuff, like ridiculous stuff. And one of them was he totally jumped out of his car, went to an outdoor seating area and grabbed half of a guy's sandwich and then ran away. That's in there. Uh, you can read it in Premier Magazine, which is no longer published. Who Was that Brad Pitt that did that? Oh, I'm that? sorry. Did I forget to say that? Yes, it was Brad Pitt. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. I'm really rocking this. Um, <sighs> let me try that story again. That reminds me of a Brad Pitt story. Um, oh. So... Well, maybe that was Bill Murray's sandwich. Maybe that happened. Brad Pitt did this to Bill Murray. And that's why, like, now Bill Murray is just trying to avenge <laughs> the sandwich that was stolen from that's him. That's his 
evil origin story. You you speaking about posters reminded me. I had this movie poster. Not everyone probably remembers Blockbuster, but I know you and I do. And I live there. Yeah. Well, Blockbuster was also quite expensive. That's so true. I went to Video Two Thousand. <laughs> it was probably real future, uh, future sounding at the time, but they would just have all these, you know, movie posters and cardboard cutouts of of you know actors, film characters, and like that's where I went. Like if I got any kind of money for my birthday or Christmas, I was buying posters. And I remember the almost famous movie poster. I think I might even still have it. It's not up in my house anymore but i i still own that poster that's fantastic i cannot yeah. criticize you because what i would do when people would give me money of some sort usually a family member i would go and buy movie soundtracks yes that was another thing i did too and i and folks let me just say i wasn't buying movie soundtracks like almost famous I wasn't buying movie soundtracks that actually had like rock and roll or anything. No, I would buy the orchestral soundtracks. The scores, the film, the film scores. scores, yeah. Because, and I remember this, I would I would run to the mall and go to, and yes, I'm dating myself, the cassette store, right? The music store was cassettes. They had some CDs, but I didn't have a CD player. At some point, my sister got one and I thought that was pretty cool. I, I wasn't allowed to touch it. And so I would run, usually right after I'd seen a movie, I would run to the music store if I had money and I would get the soundtrack. And then I would run home to my room that my mother at some point painted baby blue when it was way too late because I was much older than anybody with a baby blue room. And I had a double cassette stereo system. That's awesome. And I would put it in, and I would lay down on my bed, close my eyes, listen to the soundtrack, and try to remember every piece of the movie wherein the music took place. Yes. I would do that. I would go, uh, usually, so we had a Regal Cinema, and right in that same sort of shopping area, we had a Barnes & Noble. And this was back when in the music section of Barnes and Noble, they had little stations with headphones and you could either, I think, scan the CD and it would populate it on the computer, I guess, that it was using. And you could sit in there listening to it on these headphones. And I would do the exact same thing to like the go and like listen to the soundtrack of the movie that I just saw. This is a great segue to Tiny Dancer. Beautiful segue. This is probably, I think, the most iconic scene in this. It's such an incredibly beautiful scene. Both that this actually takes place after the acid trip. I'm a golden god. Cameron Crowe described it as it's the entire essence of the movie in one scene. To me, it's the power of music. Just so anybody who needs to remember. So they pick him up. He's a mess. He's like in a, with a towel. I don't think he even has a shirt on. Um, Russell. And they pick him up at that teenager's house. And they get him back on the, the tour bus. And they're all driving. And not dri 
Sorry, they're not all driving. Only one person is driving. They're sitting. Well, and this is after. So, like, they had the whole blow up as a band, like, about the T-shirt and, you know, Russell, you think you're better than us. And then he leaves and then, you know, decides, gets invited to that party. And so now it's like there's this all this tension and he's still kind of on his acid trip, but coming down from it. And there's all this tension on that bus. They're not talking to each other. They're not looking at each other. And then Elton John's Tiny Dancer comes on and they start singing it together. They listen to Tiny Dancer on the bus and sing along as Russell realizes the warmth and community of his band. What I remember about this is that that was the description of the scene. That was it. And so the rest of it kind of came from them doing it. And they were, I think, behind schedule or over budget or something. And Cameron Crowe was like, we got to get this scene right. And there they did it for a, a while. Like they filmed it for a few days because they wanted to get every angle, every person, every reaction. Something that I learned about that, actually I learned two things. Number one, the only person on the bus who couldn't sing was Billy. Billy Crudup. Crudup. You know, depending on what part of the country you're in, sure. Um, doesn't sing. Everyone else pretty much hmm. did. Yeah. And so when they were doing that, because at some point Russell gets really into it and just starts belting it out. What was great was that apparently, you know, he even Billy Crudup was kind of like, oh, I don't sing, you know. And I guess at some point Cameron came over to him and said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you sound like. We're going to have music over it anyway. I want to see you sing your heart out on camera. And it, and it plays. And it plays beautifully. Yeah. Fun fact, Tiny Dancer was not a very famous Elton John song at that point. He saw the movie, loved it. And he said, I think to Cameron, you get Tiny Dancer. Like, you get it. Wow. Like, he was proud of the song, but it never caught on. And after Almost Famous, it became huge. But Elton didn't even usually perform it when he was in concert until mm. after this movie. And then he had to add it to the list because people wanted it because now they love Tiny Dancer. While watching that scene, I was reminded of there's a quote in Wayne's World. Garth and Wayne are playing, you know, street hockey, you know, just kind of talking about their their show and blah, blah, blah. And Wayne goes, well, you know, I mean, Led Zeppelin didn't write songs that everyone liked. They left that up to the Bee Gees. <laughs> and I would say, and also Elton John. Yeah. Like who, who doesn't sing like to Elton John when Elton John plays? Like, I love that song. That's a fantastic song. And I remember hearing that too. Like with when, when it was on this almost famous soundtrack, like it, it kind of got popular for the first time um, since he had written it in the 70s. I can't not hear that song now and not think of Almost Famous. That's amazing. Just yeah. to correct myself, because I'm really good at making mistakes, the uh, bus scene was filmed for two days. They spent two, two days. whole days filming that tiny scene because they wanted to get it just right. And probably my last factoid. No, there's probably one more. My second to last factoid, Kate Hudson has a line that I think they even used in the trailer when William is 
in that scene and he's like, I need to go home. And Kate Hudson turns to him and says, you are home. You are home. Yeah. Improved. Wow. She just threw it in there. Yeah. Which is brilliant. 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 Yes. Again, no wonder she got nominated for an Academy Award. She's just brilliant. Well, and I think going back like to what we were saying, like to me, that's the power of music is how it brings. It's one of the only things I feel that doesn't seem to divide people. It unites people and it heals people. And it brought that whole bus of people together after some really awful things yeah. had been shared and brought to light. And it's to me, it's such a bigger metaphor for the power that music has. Final thoughts. Number one. Having seen this film so many years ago and it meaning so much to you then, what does The Raven of Today what is her review of Almost Famous? Does it stand the test of time? I think it does. Again, I think it, because I think it's about a time period in, in, of the, in the 70s and it's featuring like 70s rock, like who didn't want to be in a band, a rock and roll band in the 70s? Like it's a, it's a thing of mysticism. And, and when you think rock and roll, typically... I think a lot of people go back to 60s and 70s. 60s and 70s, right? That was the big time. Right. I mean, so many artists even today that are trying to do rock and roll or are doing rock and roll get kind of always compared to artists in the 70s. So um, I think it does. I think it does kind of stand the test of time. I think um, there's a a line towards the end um and i'm going to mess up her name her character's uh, uh sapphire i think and is it feruza feruza bulk yes i'm very sorry to have forgotten to mention her feruza bulk and i love when she's talking with <laughs> russell <laughs> and because there's that whole part right where basically like william finally like kind of tells Kate Hudson, you know, he tells Penny Lane because she's like admitting like she's, you know, she loves Russell. He loves her. And he kind of reveals like, but like he sold you. He sold you to another band for $50 and a case of beer. And you can kind of just see the drain from her face. And I love when she says, what kind of beer? <laughs> like, it's just, oh, it's so heartbreaking in that kind of use of humor. But then Russell's then finding out about her quaalude overdose and that she almost died. And if it wasn't for William, she would have died. And you kind of see his realization. And anyway, Feruza Balk, she has this line. I actually wrote this down. She goes, you know, to be a fan is to truly love some silly little piece of music or some band so much that it hurts. It's not always rational or practical to be a fan, but it's it's something that's also so emotionally honest and genuine for somebody and like you know lester bang towards the beginning says you know music chooses you and i love that i love that line as well it talks about the human elements the honesty elements the power that music has how it changes you how it inspires you that's our hope right that 
these artists that we love and their art inspires us, we want them to keep making art. I don't know. I think it does still stand up. I, I think I was really glad that I found this movie again because I was just so reminded why I loved it so much then. And I feel like I even love it more now, like for even maybe some slightly different reasons, but honestly still the same too. Yeah. I mean, you kind of said it at the beginning. You saw different layers that you didn't catch before. The love level yeah. might be the same, but maybe it's a little bit more... Um, maybe maybe your relationship with it is a little bit more complex now than it was yeah any negative or cringe moments in the film any moments that you were like oh i don't know if i love that i think definitely that poker game where the road managers of all these bands uh are playing poker and basically they're wagering these women as the bet and these women are being sold sold are they okay with that do they know that that's happening or is it just hey you're not gonna you know you know be on uh you know tour with uh Stillwater anymore you know you're going to with Deep Purple and it's like did they have a say in that so I really didn't you know I understand maybe why it's in there but I just that was a very big cringeworthy moment of just uh I don't like how that makes me feel I think another thing I looked at was there was very little diversity in the film. I mean, in the 70s, you still had other artists, like you had artists of color. And I just, I wish like that would have been part of this more. Because like, I mean, Ike and Tina Turner, Chuck Berry. I mean, I think a lot of people think of Chuck Berry as like 50s and 60s, but I mean, he did a lot in the 70s too. And I don't know, I just, I kind of wish like, it just would have been a little bit more diverse in terms of, but you know, I mean, I just noticed that. I was like, wow, there's really not a lot of diverse, like everyone's white. Sometimes we see that in that time period, not the, right. not the 70s, but the 2000s. <laughs> just for concluding thoughts, Raven, why do you like this movie so much? The power of music, how music inspires people how it teaches you things about yourself, how it can bring people together. Music often has the power to convey emotion at times when words do not. Music allows people to feel things, I think sometimes that, that you can't even put a label on. You know, why do we like the music that we like? Why does it resonate with us? Why does it speak to us? It just does. You can't always explain why you love something or how it connects with you and just lo loving that through that part of you through music. One of my favorite sort of lines I think is from Penny Lane when she says, and if you ever get lonely, you just go to the record store and visit your friends. And to me, that's what the movie's about. Raven, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast again. We're still going to come back together again because we started a conversation about Point Break and this was not the moment to do it because we were talking about this movie. But we will come back to Point Break in the future. So you are, if you're willing, we would love to have you back so that we can have that in-depth 
conversation about the doctoral thesis worthy <laughs> brilliance. Yeah. That is Point Break. The original, not the second one, because that was terrible. No, that one doesn't exist in my world. They didn't, you know, they didn't ask me if that was okay to do, because I would have told them the truth. But yeah, no, I would love to come back. I would love to talk about Point Break. And honestly, it's a moral imperative at this point. Yes. We we owe it to the fans. To of, the fans. To the fans of Point Break and to the fans <laughs> of this podcast. Exactly. We owe it to you. You're welcome in advance. <laughs>